0: If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to take on the second half of this chapter this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you, and also the words will be on the screen if you prefer to follow along that way, or if you want to use your handheld device, that's certainly okay as well. But we pick up in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, we'll read through 31, and then I'll invite you to pray with me. So let's begin. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. Remember, this was Saul's journey to Damascus, where he encountered Christ, and his life was forever changed. Immediately, he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so that they could murder him. Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, Some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening at the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated, he debated with some of the Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown." The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord, and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the Word of God and for the Holy Spirit of God. I pray this morning that as we open the Word That, God, our minds and our hearts and our lives would be enlightened to the truth. That we would be encouraged by the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit to be and to live as, God, you have called us and set us apart to. I pray that as we journey through your Word today, you will reveal to us the encouragement we need to live for you. In Christ's name, amen. If you've been with us all year, you know that we are going through a series in the book of Acts, Um, and we are now obviously in chapter 9, but for those of you who are new today, uh, now you know we're in a series in the book of Acts. We do take a break occasionally, and I only bring this up because for the past two weeks we haven't been in Acts, and so I want to catch us back up to where we are and where we're going this morning. In chapter nine of Acts, we can find this chapter to be neatly divided really into two parts. And that's exactly what I did for the sake of preaching it in the two part series between three weeks ago and today. Part one is really all about Saul's encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, where Saul not only had an encounter with Christ, But that is the very place where Saul, who eventually we know as the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, had a radical conversion to Christianity as he responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you recall, Saul was on the road to Damascus from Jerusalem with papers in hand as he sought to persecute anybody who followed the way, the way being Jesus Christ. The irony of his journey to Damascus with the persecuting papers was that when Jesus showed up and introduced himself and radically changed Saul's life, Saul went from a persecutor of Christians to a preacher of the gospel and now winning people to Christianity. Today, we're going to look at part two as we consider how God was at work preparing Saul for the ministry of the gospel. If you recall, it was Ananias that God had appointed when Saul got to Damascus to go and lay his hands on him. It was Ananias who pushed back on God and said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that man is killing Christians. I'm not sure I want to go there. But God said this to Ananias, Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God had set Saul apart for a particular ministry in the church. And now what we're finding is how God is taking time to prepare Saul for that ministry. Did you know that you too, if you are a Christian, have been set apart for a ministry in the gospel. The word ministry can simply be understood as service. As a Christian in the church, we make up a family and we're called the body of Christ and each body has many parts. You are one part. As a part, whether you're a finger, a toe, a hand, an elbow, a knee, an eye, God is gonna prepare you to function and to act out of the ministry calling that he has for you like Saul who was called and prepared so are you so am I who are called and prepared for the ministry of the gospel within the church and today i want to take some time to help us to identify in both Saul's conversion experience which we've already talked about but also in his preparation for ministry the commonalities are those points upon which we can identify with Saul in his conversion and preparation that we can draw into our life by way of application through God's word and how we as Christians are not only called but prepared for ministry by God. Sometimes going through a historical narrative is really challenging to bring out application for the Christian life. You can imagine, right? But I think Luke has done a really good job of giving us enough information to work with that hopefully if I do my job today well, you'll be able to identify the pieces and parts that are common for all Christians in our conversion and in our preparation. Well, Saul's conversion was quite dramatic, if you remember that. The light of God showed up, Jesus presented himself, whoa, there's this dramatic experience, and he went from being a persecutor to a preacher. Any one of us who has had a dramatic life change experience through encountering Jesus, we say that that was our Damascus Road experience, don't we? And we know what that means. But for those of you who didn't have the Damascus Road experience, you've had a gradual change and encounter with Christ. I want you to know that just like Saul in that moment he was saved, there was a moment for you as well. When you were saved, you were justified, you were born again, you were spiritually made alive in Christ, and the Holy Spirit of the living God was given to you. That's true for all of us as Christians. But as we consider the common experiences in the Christian conversion, I want to point out four of them as we move into then how God prepares us for ministry. The first common experience in our conversion is that in order to be a follower of Jesus, We all have had to have had a personal encounter with Jesus, been presented the gospel, and given an opportunity to respond to the gospel. The second thing that we all have in common, like Saul, is that we become a new person in Christ. The Holy Spirit of the living God, when we respond to the gospel and we're made alive in Christ or we become spiritually born again, is placed in us as a seal, as a deposit, as a guarantee of our inheritance of eternal life, but also to empower us for life and ministry here and now. The third thing is that we take on a new master or we find that we have a new Lord in our life. No longer am I the master over my life, am I the Lord over my life where I'm doing life as I please, but I now subject myself to Jesus Christ. I surrender my life to him He becomes my master, he becomes my Lord, and I now live to please him and not me. And the last thing that I'd mention is that we all now have a new message. And that message is called the gospel of grace. It's a message upon which I was saved by grace and so can you. Let me tell you about how God saved me and I want you to know that he wants to save you too. Well, through Saul's conversion, we come to understand that God is at work pursuing people and calling them to salvation. And what we realized last time we talked about Saul's conversion was that we have to understand that nobody, nobody is too lost to be saved, and nobody is too useless to be used by God. Now, if you're on the struggle bus this morning, I want to give you some hope. And I want to encourage you. Because if you're struggling in life and you're wondering where God is and what he has for you, and if he loves you, and if he can still use you for something good, I promise you he can. He loves you. He's pursuing you. He hasn't given up on you. He wants the best for you. And what he wants of you is for you to surrender to him. And when we do, he will mold us and shape us into his image. Saul, who became Paul, tells of himself to Timothy in 1.15, uh, he says, "'This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too—' can believe in Him and receive eternal life. Doesn't that give you hope? That if the worst of sinners can be saved by God and used by God, what does that say about you? What does that say about me? It says that so can we. But here's the kicker. Once we're saved, God doesn't just throw us in and expects us to take on some high level responsibility and oversight within the church and ministry of the church. What he does do is he invites us to immediately join him on mission. And that mission is the proclamation of the gospel. But then he prepares us over time through season in life. And then he sets us apart and gives us our ministry calling. The thing that we must understand about the mission of God as a new Christian is that all God's inviting us into, essentially at the beginning, is to tell people the good news about what happened to you and that that good news can be applied to them. After a time of preparation, after a time of being seasoned, after a time of being formed into the image and likeness of God, God will then set us apart and send us in and send us out for a more specific use and calling in our life within the church and within the world. But before he does that, God wants us to become a little bit more spiritually mature. He wants us to grow up in Christ so that we can be responsible and dependable as we go out on mission. For Jesus. Now, many of us read the conversion story of Saul to go like this. Saul went from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute Christians, and on his way, he encountered Jesus. Jesus changed his life. He went to Damascus, preached the gospel, won people to Christ, and from that point forward, he went out into the world and had successful ministry ever since then that's actually not true. What is true is that Paul, Saul, who became Paul, went through an exhaustive time of season and preparation for the ministry of the gospel. In fact, before Paul was sent out on mission, he went through 14 years of ministry preparation. Did you know that? Isn't that amazing? We're going to look at that a little bit this morning as we consider how God molds and shapes us and then sends us out on mission. It might not take God 14 years to shape in you, your ministry calling. But I also want to remind you of this. For the time and the season that God's going to take to mold you and shape you so that he can use you for your specific calling, he doesn't let you go without excuse in terms of joining mission right away. For you might need to grow up in Christ before you're giving your specific assignment. But before you're given your specific assignment and you grow up in Christ, God still wants you to tell people the good news about the gospel and what he's done for you. So there's three stages that all Christians essentially go through as we spiritually mature or grow up in Christ. And we're going to see this happen in Paul's experience here as well. So I want to take the the, the common experience and apply it to our own life. So you can maybe relate to this. When you became a Christian, it's very likely that you were on fire for the Lord and you had this mountaintop experience where you were close with God, you were intimate with God, you were reading your word and he was speaking to you and it was so rich and and it was so meaningful When you came uh, from that mountaintop experience and you went into the world and you told people about Jesus, they were excited to hear about your life change. They were excited to hear about Jesus. And even if they weren't excited to accept Jesus, they were at least excited for you. Isn't that true? But then life happens and time goes on and the Christian life becomes difficult. You begin to experience life differently and you realize that It's not that easy. In fact, it's difficult. We're stiff-armed. We're rejected. The message is no longer exciting to those who are hearing. My life change has seasoned to it now, so now they know me and through my life change. And for some reason, we go through valleys and droughts and we wonder, God, where are you and what are you doing in my life? But then there's that third stage where we grow up in Christ, and this is the one where we recognize and realize that the Christian life is absolutely impossible on our own that outside of the Holy Spirit that's in us, empowering us, equipping us, and helping us through life, we can't do this. Not only can we not do it without Christ, we can't do it without the church, without being in fellowship, without one another. So consider Paul's preparation for ministry and the essentials that God used to prepare him as you think of your own life and how God is preparing you For service in the church. The first point this morning is that we are preparing for ministry by spending time alone with God. In verse 19, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him, were amazed. Isn't this the man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. This is the time in, in, in Saul's life where the Christian life is easy, I mean, he's out there. It's immediate. He's getting results. He's effective. He's helping people see that Jesus is who he is. In fact, in this short time, what we learn from Luke's writing here is that there are three big things that happened in Saul's life. Number one, Saul recognized and realized. Now keep in mind who Saul was, a Pharisee. He had a mind and an education like an attorney. Uh, he was one who was uh, a leader within the the, the Jerusalem uh, Church of well the Jews and and now he's out and about and he's been radically changed. He was so well versed in the Old Testament. What he came to realize was that everything about the Old, Ter- Old Testament is not only revealed but fulfilled in the person of Christ. So as much as he wanted to believe that Jesus was dead and that all these Christians were following someone dead. He had this encounter with Christ and he realizes now Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. His encounter with Christ was after the ascension into heaven. He's not dead. He is alive. He realized Jesus is the son of God. The Old Testament all throughout it points to the Messiah being the son of God. He recognized Jesus to be that. And then he recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, the savior of the world, the one who the Old Testament pointed to as being the one that God appointed to come and bring salvation to all of humanity. He recognizes this, he realizes this, he's excited about this, he's sharing this and everybody's responding to it as they question what in the world happened to him. Isn't that great? But after enjoying the immediate Impact and effect of ministry in Damascus. Saul went off for three years to Arabia. Now, I personally believe that Saul's time in Arabia happened exactly at this point, between verses 22 and 23. It doesn't say this here. In other parts, we'll find it. I'm going to direct you to Galatians here in a moment. Some scholars and commentators believe that it maybe happened between verses 25 and 6, but For our sake today, we're going to use it right here, right now. Because I want to take you now to Galatians chapter 1, and I want to show you something. Paul writes this of his own experience and his own journey to Damascus. In verse 15, he says, But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his Son to me, So that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, this happened on the road to Damascus. So, when this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away to Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then, three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at the time was James, the Lord's brother. So here after his conversion, he's in Damascus, he's preaching the gospel, and the Lord takes him out of Damascus and sends him to Arabia for three years. Why Arabia? Where is it? What happened there? Well, Arabia at the time of Paul was all of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, as we know it today, and part of Syria, and it bordered Damascus. Well, as Saul went into Arabia, Arabia was known as the wilderness. So is it possible that it was Saul's wilderness experience with God that prepared him for the ministry of the gospel? I think so. It's speculation, but we can. We don't have a whole lot about this time, but I want to draw some connecting points to Arabia that might give us some insight to what God was doing in Saul's life. Arabia also has a place called Mount Sinai in it. Mount Sinai was where Moses met with God on the mountain and received the law. Sinai in Arabia was also the place where a messenger, a prophet named Elijah, met with God. On the mountain, and received the message that he was to be a messenger for God. It is speculation on my part, and I'm gonna throw that out there again. But is it possible that it was in Arabia on Mount Sinai where the law was given that Saul experienced an understanding of God's grace? Is it possible that in Arabia on Sinai, it was where Saul realized and accepted? his call to be a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles in the world? I think maybe. But what I know is that his time in Arabia was a time that he got with God. The 12 apostles had three years of ministry preparation with Jesus one-on-one. And many scholars and Bible commentators believe that Paul's three years in Arabia was just that, One-on-one training time with the Lord Jesus Christ in his preparation for the ministry of the gospel. All the Old Testament dots were now being connected for Paul. He was seeing how Jesus was the complete fulfillment and how the gospel brought life. You see, as we mature spiritually, it's critical that we do so by spending time alone with God. This might be obvious, but I just want to mention some ways that we can spend time alone with God that will be very formative to our life as a Christian. Reading our Bibles, it's really, really important. That's why this year we're inviting everybody in the church to do our one-year Bible read-through together. If you haven't started, now's not too late. We spend time alone with God through prayer When we communicate and we talk to God and let him talk to us through fasting, as we demonstrate a dependence on the Holy Spirit and not on ourselves or those around us for nourishment. We take time to spend time reading the Bible and meditating and then maybe journaling the thoughts that God is giving to us. How about Bible study? It's more than just reading, it's more than meditating. It's digging deep into the scripture so that we can have a better understanding of who God is. We can listen to worship music, we can take time to listen to podcasts of good preachers. If you do that, let me just say this please listen to good preachers who teach the word of God and have sound doctrine so important. Because when we spend time alone with God, it will form us and shape us into the likeness of God. So I want to talk about just a few of the benefits that come with being alone with God. Experiencing intimacy and true friendship with God comes as a benefit of being alone with Him. Our mind is renewed. We no longer think like the world thinks, we begin to think like God thinks. Our appetites change. No longer do we desire the things of the world, but we desire the things of God. We grow in knowledge and understanding of God. We begin to hear God's voice. And when we spend time with God, one of the benefits is that God will align our will to his. Isn't it funny how often we want to align God's will to ours? But when we spend time with God, he takes time to align our will to his. And when we spend time with God, another benefit is that we begin to see people differently. And when we see people differently, The result of that is that the relationships in our lives will change dramatically. I've been walking with a young man who is a recent convert to Christianity. He's adult in his 40s, maybe early 50s. And um, he's been a Christian now for about a year and a half. He doesn't live in our community and he doesn't go to our church. But we spend time on the phone talking about his walk with Jesus and one of the crazy things is is that it was in the depths of his life, the pit of hell of his life where he met Jesus, struggling with alcohol, and what he wanted more than anything else was sobriety, but he cried out to Jesus and what he found was not only did he get sobriety, but he found life, an abundant life, and a life that is far greater than anything he even could even imagine. But this is what Jesus does when we encounter him. He gives us far more than we could ask or imagine. And he certainly did this in this young man's life. But now as this guy has an appetite for God and for the word of God and spending time with God, he decided to go to seminary, not because he's called to be a pastor, but because he wants to spend time with God. He wants to get to know God on a much more deep and rich level. And just last week I was talking to him and one of the things he was telling me was, he said, I can't believe a trend, how my appetite in life has changed, how I see people differently, how for the first time in 20 years, I actually have a marriage with my wife, how God is cleaning up my mouth, how the things that I used to desire and pursue and run after, I no longer have a desire for, actually desire to run after God. And my friends think I'm crazy. But that's what happens when we spend time alone with God. See, spending time alone with God will help us to see who Jesus really is. To see who we really are. And then to see what God wants us to do. The second thing in preparing for ministry is that we do that through real life experiences. This is where the Christian life goes from this is easy to this is difficult, from the mountaintop to the valley below. Listen to Saul's experience here in the difficult journey of, of being prepared for ministry. In verse uh, 23, we pick up, Saul's preaching became, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 23, after a while, now this is after he came back from Damascus, as I understand it, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. Verse 24, they were watching for him day and night at the city gate so that they could murder him, but Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening at the city wall. Coming back from one of the most mountaintop experiences of Saul's life, one of those opportunities where it was a rich experience of spending time with Jesus. He was, I imagine, ready to conquer the world for Christ, right? He enters Damascus and and what he's met with is stern resistance, a stiff arm, a rejection of the message, so much so that they wanted to take his life. And as a result, he was lowered through the window and he was sent to Jerusalem. You ever been there? ever wonder how you can be so close and walking with God and all of a sudden you find yourself in the valley below and from the time you're on the top to the time you're in the valley, it's such a short time and you wonder how in the world did I get here and how in the world am I going to get out? How is it that God could be so close and now he's so distant? How is it that I know that I was walking in the will of God and now I'm wondering where God is? We can be encouraged today. God will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He may have allowed it to happen, to give you a valley experience, to form you and shape you and mold you into his image, to mature you and grow you up in Christ. When asked the question, why did this happen to Saul, one commentator suggests, apart from the fact that the Jews in Damascus were just plain ornery and the gospel is offensive, Constant success would have made Saul insufferable, especially at the beginning of his ministry. If goals had been reached too easily, he would have never written the marvelous, encouraging passages like 2 Corinthians 4.7, which says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In the Christian experience, the ministry that God is preparing us for and doing through us is by the power of God in us, not by self-will, self-reliance, or self-righteousness. Too many people think the Christian life is about a shift in morality or a behavioral modification. It's not that. That stuff happens But the Christian life is about life, and that life is in Christ, and we are a new creation in Christ. And without Christ, we can't have life. You can't fake the Christian life, because on one hand, it can be easy, and it can seem difficult, but then there comes that time where it's virtually impossible, and we realize that. So you can't fake the Christian life. You either have it or you don't. preparation for the kingdom of God, it requires the overhaul of one's character. See, God will do whatever it takes to strip us of ourself so that he can fill us with himself. He strips us of ourselves so that we don't Look in the mirror and find the confidence that we have in ourself, but that we find the confidence we have in the Lord. That we don't go through life dependent on ourself, but that we go through life dependent on Jesus. A.W. Tozer once wrote, It's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I don't think that God delights in hurting people. So if that's what you take from that, I'm sorry. Let me give you a new perspective because that's not what he meant. Basically, it's like this. Anytime we have a sliver that is deeply embedded, we have to dig deep. We have to dig around. We have to do what it takes to get in there so that we can get it out so that when it's healed, it's dependable. God does that to us sometimes and it hurts us deeply because sometimes God has to go in really deep and turn that instrument a lot so that he can jar loose the thing that's in us that is preventing us from becoming like him. But once it's jarred loose, there's now a space for God to fill that, not with us again, but with him. And through every opportunity and experience that God does this with us, we can be certain that we become more and more like Jesus. In the previous church that I served, I once received a letter. It was about three pages long from a disgruntled congregant who had a lot to say and a lot of opinions about me and the ministry that I was leading. And as I read through it, I was upset about it. I had all these emotions through it. I realized that I wasn't their biggest fan. As I got to the end, I had great anticipation of learning who this person was because I wanted to set up a meeting so that we could sit and resolve our conflict. But I got to the end and what I realized was that they had the courage to not put their name on the letter. That's not courage. That's being a coward. So what did I do? I took the letter. It hurt me. I was upset. Once I got over my feelings about it, I sat with the Lord and I prayed over it. I couldn't understand how giving my life to somebody and their families was received in such a light that they were seeing it because it wasn't true. But in the midst of it all, God taught me a great lesson and he molded something in me that I'll never forget. And this was the takeaway. It's impossible to please people. But it's not impossible to please God. And as a pastor, and as a person, and as a Christian, my number one responsibility is not to please all of you, it's to please my Lord Jesus Christ, and to live according to His will. And that's true for you, too. Because when we live to please people, we realize that people place unrealistic demands on our life that never can be attained. But when we live to please God, we can be certain that He will prepare us in every way we need to be prepared to live so that we can please Him. The third thing, lastly, and I'm going to be quick on this, is we prepare for ministry through the care and support of other believers. This is where we find that the Christian life becomes impossible without God. I can't do it on my own. I must do it with God. I have to be completely dependent on him. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, verse 26, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, to his hometown." We're three years into this journey. He goes to his hometown. We pick up again in chapter 11, which is some eight to 10 years later. Saul's preparation for ministry continues. But well, right now, let me put into perspective Saul goes from Damascus, where he's rejected, to Jerusalem. He wants to meet with the Christians there. He's rejected by his own. The, the, the Jewish leaders reject him because they know that he's a convert, and the church doesn't believe him, so they reject him because they think he's a liar. So he shows up in a Sunday morning service and he's not greeted, he's not welcomed, and he's not made to be a part of the family he now belongs. If you are new today, I hope that you were greeted at the doors, that somebody met you in the foyer, and that while you're in here and before your leave, you leave, so, you will feel so overwhelmed and cared for and approached that you know this is a place you want to be because you are welcomed here. You see, what happened in Saul's life that gave him the opportunity to connect to the church? It wasn't him, it was a man named Barnabas who lived into his own meaning of his name, son of encouragement. Barnabas went to Saul and said, Tell me your story. I want to hear your story. He believed Saul. Not only did he believe Saul, but he brought Saul to the pastors of the church and he said, this is my friend Saul. Saul came here from Damascus. He's met Jesus. He proclaims Jesus. He is going to be a leader in the church and and I want you to meet him and I want us to welcome him and Saul gets all involved in the church. He goes around Jerusalem and he proclaims the good news of Jesus. How does this translate into our lives? I think that when I look at all of you, I would love to see all of you with the sign above your head that says, I'm a Barnabas, a son of encouragement, a person who is willing to look out for the strangers among us, the newbies who've never been here and go after them, overwhelm them with love and kindness and invitation into this world and into this church family. I want you to look down your aisle and I want you to be like, I've never met that person before. I'm gonna scoot on down and say, hi, I'm Trinity, what's your name? That's a little strange, right? It might mean you have to leave your seat, but that's okay. Invite somebody to lunch. You might even bump elbows with somebody and you say, you know what? Hi, I've been here 20 years. How long have you been here? I've been here 20 years. Can you imagine we've been here 20 years and never met each other? The Barnabas among us will reach out and in to the lives of those around us to help us to be included and welcomed into the family of God. The first day of school when I was a junior, I went from my sophomore year at this school to my junior year at this high school. They were rivals. I started in the office of the principal and I was making my way to the classroom. And when I left the principal's office to go to my classroom as they welcomed me, the aisle of children, kids, youth, they parted like the sea. Through silence, I walked as everybody stared. I got to the end and it closed. And then I heard, who's that? Is that the new guy? Is that guy Trinity? Is that that?" you think I felt welcomed? Not at all. Imagine how different my experience could have been had when the sea parted, I was welcomed and brought in. When I made it to my classroom, the coach had set up two wrestlers to meet me and greet me, to welcome me in and show me the ropes. They were the Barnabas in my life at that school. And my challenge and my question to you is, who are you being a Barnabas to? Who are you reaching out to so that they can be included in, to feel welcome and to feel a part of this family? So let's be Barnabases, amen? Amen. Amen. Let me wrap it up with this thought. Being prepared for ministry doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes God has to do the hard work of digging in and pulling out so that what he can replace within us is the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And when he does that, and as he does that, we are called to live a life not of self-reliance, or self-righteousness, but of complete surrender and dependence on him. And then we're called to be Barnabas to those around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the good word that we find in the word of God, for the encouragement that we can cling to today, that as Saul was prepared for a ministry of reaching people with the gospel, so too are we God, as you prepare us, help us to understand the value of spending time alone with you. Understanding that sometimes in the valleys and the difficulties of life that you mold us and shape us there. Help us to recognize and realize that God, it's in the time of life when others encourage us and we have opportunity to encourage others that the family becomes healthy and it grows. Help us to be that today in Christ's name, amen.